American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about a fun subject since we're both baseball fans, though a little bit sore in my case because I'm from Boston. We're talking about the greatest baseball player of all time, the Sultan of Swat, the Mambino, the Babe. Not only was he the most significant hitter of all time, he was one of the greatest pitchers of his era, too. And he lived like he hit home runs, spectacularly. He had almost no discipline to rein in his appetites, and he lived a life of indulgence. But he was a God-haunted soul. You said he had what he called inside of him a solid little chapel, which kept him at least a little grounded. Yes, he prayed frequently and hard. He didn't miss Mass on Sunday. He went to confession, gave much to charity, and knew that his Catholic faith made him who he was. So let's talk about who he was. Let's start with where he came from. Sure. So George Herman Ruth Jr. was born in 1895 in the Pigtown section of Baltimore, Maryland. Pigtown was not far from where the Orioles Stadium at Camden Yards is today. His Catholic father kept a saloon and his Lutheran mother died when he was very young. So he was baptized Catholic and then grew up at his dad's saloon where he learned lots of rough lessons. He wandered around the streets, getting in fights and just being mischievous. And all this was before he was seven. Right. At seven, his father finally decided or realized he couldn't raise George Jr. So he dropped him off at St. Mary's Industrial School, which was run by the Zaverian brothers. Ruth described it as a training school for orphans, incorrigibles, delinquents, and runaways picked up on the streets of the city. But industrial didn't mean the boys worked in factories. No, it meant forming them into productive and contributing, that is, industrious, members of society. And Ruth grew up there in the Spartan, regimented conditions. It was the best thing that could have happened to him. Indeed. Ruth was taken under the wing by brother Matthias Boulier, a six foot six, 250-pound mountain of a man who knew baseball. Brother Matthias noted Ruth's raw ability and so used baseball to direct the kid and teach him about life. That instruction was the foundation for everything that came later. Well, the good parts, anyhow. The baseball success, his firm foundation in the faith that saved him, and his extreme generosity. Later in life, Ruth called Brother Matthias the greatest man I have ever known and said of him, he could have been successful at anything he wanted in life, and he chose the church. And it was because of this traveling baseball team that Ruth was discovered. Yes. In 1913, when Ruth was 18 years old, the St. Mary's team traveled from Baltimore to Mount St. Mary's College in the sleepy rural town of Emmitsburg, Maryland, for a game against alumni of Mount St. Mary's, which is known as the Mount. Now, you call it a sleepy town, but this wasn't the first time something of historical significance happened in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Uh, no, not by a long shot. And we'll talk about Emmitsburg, Mount St. Mary's, and many people who lived in that area in future episodes of American Catholic history. But back to the babe at the Mount. The pitcher for the Mount that day was Joe Engel, who was actually a pitcher for the Washington Senators. He was off that day because, at the time, if you can believe it, Washington, D.C. didn't allow baseball to be played on Sundays. So he went to Emmitsburg and pitched for his alma mater. Pitching that day for St. Mary's was George Ruth. Engel said of Ruth, he could really wheel the ball in there. This kid was a great natural pitcher. He had everything. And Engel would have known great pitching because his teammate was Walter Johnson, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Right. 
Plus, Angle himself would go on to become a longtime, highly respected baseball scout. So on the train back to Washington, D.C., Angle sat with Jack Dunn, who was the owner of the minor league Baltimore Orioles. Angle told Dunn about Ruth. Dunn noted the name, and then a few weeks later, another baseball source talked up Ruth to Dunn. So Dunn went to see for himself. After watching Ruth for 30 minutes, Dunn signed him to a professional contract of February 14, 1914, for $250 per month. But his stint in the minors was very short. By July, Ruth had signed with the Boston Red Sox. But his time in Baltimore wasn't without significance. Right. The Orioles were responsible for his nickname. Upon seeing the big-cheeked, hulking 19-year-old come into the clubhouse, his new teammates called him Jack's newest babe, and thus the babe was born. So, babe Ruth went to Boston. Yes. As a pitcher with the Red Sox, he won three World Series titles and established himself as one of the best pitchers of his day. He threw nine shutouts in 1916, a record which has been tied once but never surpassed. He won at least 20 games twice, though he only made more than 20 starts three times. In three World Series, he was 3-0 with an ERA of 0.67, and in one World Series game, he pitched a record 14 innings in a complete game shutout of the Dodgers. He had an overall lifetime pitching record of 94-46 and with an ERA of 2.28, which is actually still the 16th best of all time. So he really had the potential to be a Hall of Fame pitcher. Right. But in 1919, the Red Sox owner needed money, so he infamously sold Ruth to the Yankees. Ruth would pitch occasionally for the Yankees over the next 13 years, but the Yankees quickly turned him into an outfielder. And as good as his pitching was, his hitting was even better. When he broke the career home run record in 1921, that record was only 129 homers. He would go on to hit 575 more homers after that. That's an amazing career for most players. To this day, he either holds the record or is in the top five in most major hitting categories. Homers, RBI, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, walks, runs scored, and a slew of, of obscure records that only big fans get geeked up about. Like you. Yeah. Plus, he won seven World Series titles between the Red Sox and Yankees. He was a very, very good baseball player. He revolutionized the game. So that's his life on the field. Let's talk more about his life off the field. As mentioned at the beginning, he accomplished all of that while living larger than life off the field. Yes, there was much indulgence and debauchery, but there was also much repentance, generosity, and reaching for goodness. He got married in 1914 within months of arriving in Boston. It seems he was trying to establish the good, safe life that he knew he was supposed to lead. His wife, Helen, was also Catholic. They bought a farmhouse in rural Sudbury, Massachusetts, and attempted to live a normal life. They adopted a daughter, but Ruth didn't quite know how to settle down especially now that he had money and fame. And when he was sold to the Yankees, he soon became the biggest star on the most famous team in the glitz and glamour of 1920s New York City. It only got worse. Women, drink, parties, food, everything to feed the appetites. The Bay would party all night and go hit a homer the next day. If it was a Saturday night party, he'd be up in time to get to Mass with confession beforehand, then he'd go hit a homer. His roommates would quip that they didn't room with Ruth, they roomed with Ruth's suitcase. In the early 1920s, Helen decided she just couldn't handle it all any longer, and she moved with their daughter back to Sudbury. The two never divorced, both being Catholic, but would live mostly separated until Helen died tragically in 1929. In 1922, the babe befriended an actress and model named Claire Hodgson. Babe and Claire became good friends and remained mostly just that until after Helen died. Three months later, babe 
Babe and Claire married. They would remain married and together for the rest of Babe's life, but Babe was no more faithful to Claire than he had been to Helen. So while he had a tough time being true to his vows, he recognized they were vows and could not be set aside. Right. By all accounts, he loved Helen and later Claire. He just didn't have the discipline to be faithful. His tendency towards extremes had a positive side, however. Yes, he was extremely generous with charity, particularly when it came to disadvantaged children. He would spend hours signing autographs until every baseball was signed and would visit youth in hospitals and orphanages all over the country. When games ended, he'd frequently go from the stadium to the sandlot to play pickup games with kids in the neighborhood. He gave copiously to many orphanages and schools, particularly his old school St. Mary's, and even bought a really nice Cadillac for Brother Matthias, a car that would cost about $70,000 today. He had joined the Knights of Columbus, the Père Marquette Council 271 in South Boston, and remained as active a member as he could. His agent, Christy Walsh, was also a knight. Ruth and Walsh worked with Knights councils across the country to organize barnstorming tours that would bring in Ruth and other big stars like Lou Gehrig to play exhibition games for charitable causes. These tours did a lot to popularize baseball nationwide when baseball only extended as far west as St. Louis. In 1921, he returned to where it all began, Mount St. Mary's College, to visit with the faculty and students. He hadn't planned on putting on a baseball show, but the students prevailed upon him, and Ruth went out dressed up like an old-school pre-theologian in white shirt, black tie, and black slacks to hit baseballs all over Echo Field. So Ruth lived big in good ways and bad, and his life after baseball showed it. Yes, Ruth's numbers began to drop in the early 1930s, and by 1935, he had retired from baseball. He would live another 13 years, filled with exhibition baseball events and charity work, particularly work with sick and disabled children. And he truly believed that his grounding in the faith is what saved his life from the unruliness of his youth. Right. He said, quote, I doubt if any appeal could have straightened me out except a power over and above man, the appeal of God. Iron rod discipline couldn't have done it, nor all the punishment and reward systems that could have been devised. Of the importance of teaching kids religion, he said, the more I think of it, the more important I feel it is to give kids the works as far as religion is concerned. They'll never want to be holy. They'll act like tough monkeys in contrast, but somewhere inside will be a solid little chapel. Yes. I love that image. I do, I do too. I really do. He really had a very prodigal son sense of faith. He said, the lads who get religious training get it where it counts, in the roots. They may fail it, but it never fails them. Babe Ruth was diagnosed with throat cancer in 1946, and while waiting for surgery, he received a letter from a boy. The boy wrote to Ruth, everybody in the seventh grade class is pulling and praying for you. I am enclosing a medal, which if you wear will make you better. Your pal, Mike Quinlan. It was a miraculous medal, which Ruth asked to have pinned to his pajamas and pledged to wear it until he died. Ruth survived another two years, dying of cancer on August 16th, 1948, at just 53 years old. Fifteen months before he died, he established the Babe Ruth Foundation to carry on his work helping children, particularly those with cancer and other diseases. Upon his death, a lot of his money went into that foundation so his work could continue. Before he died, while facing the cancer, a priest came to see Ruth in the hospital and heard his confession before bringing him communion the next morning. Ruth said of that confession, As I lay in bed that evening, I thought to myself what a comforting feeling to be free from fear and worries. I now could simply turn them over to God. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com 
or follow StarQuest on social media at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or on Twitter at S2PN. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.